I tell you, if that song doesn't get us ready for the Word of God, then we are going to be in trouble today. And you're going to be in trouble because last service, um, I lost my mind a little bit, went a little hot um, on the congregation, just because when we are talking about what we're talking about today, this isn't, and here, here's the issue sometimes. We tend to view church as if the person that's standing up here is the entertainer, we're the audience, and that's it. But the problem is that's not it. Um, I'm up here declaring the word of God to us, saying we need to all be responding to the, the God of this word that we are talking about. And um, today, as we hear things, I pray that you would respond and that you would understand the God that we are talking about. And if you don't, I just might lose my mind again. So I'm going to go ahead and prepare you uh, for, for that. It could happen. I hope it doesn't, but it just might. So if you have your Bibles... I trust you do. If you can open with me to Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah 48 is where we're going to be this morning. We are beginning a new series, as I said, um, focusing on the attributes of God. We are calling it Behold, where we are beholding God and just who He is. And what we need to understand is that the attributes of God are a collection of descriptions from Scripture of who God is. An attribute can be defined as something God has revealed himself to be through his word. And so this isn't about what we attribute God to be. This is about what God and who God has revealed himself to be. Growing up, many children learn a simple mealtime prayer. If you know it, I'm going to invite you to say it along with me. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands, we all are fed. Thank you, Amen. Very good. So this simple prayer, whether we know it or not, highlights two attributes or two perfections of God, that God is great and God is most definitely good. And so we want to teach our children that God is great. We want to teach our children that God is good. That's that's a good thing for us to teach our children. We want to teach our children that God's hands give us our daily bread. But let me say this, and please hear what I'm saying and don't hear what I'm not saying. That's really cute for a three-year-old to say. Not as cute for a 45-year-old to be saying. What, and what I mean by that is this. Yes, we need to be focused on the greatness of God, the goodness of God, but we need to go deeper than that. We need to be at a place where we're growing and coming to know and understand what sort of God He really is, what He is really like. And what He is like goes beyond greatness and goodness. So we want to go there as well. We want to understand what his characteristics, his attributes, his perfections, what they are. Sadly, many in our world, and not just children, go through life with a very vague notion of who God is. If they think about him at all, they don't always think about him rightly. Meaning, even though they might describe some attributes to God, their attributes probably aren't even biblical. And what I mean by that is this, some think of God as loving, but they don't think of God as judging. They think of God as being angry and wrathful, wrathful, but not full of grace. They think of God as being wise, but yet he is not powerful. Yet understand this this morning, ignorance of God's attributes is no small thing. It has profound effects upon our lives and upon the life of the church. For think about it, how can our hearts be gripped by the glory of God if we are ignorant of who he is? Or how can our lives be transformed by his grace if we're ignorant to his grace? 
I think about the words of, of Tozer, and I've got a, a big quote about this say in just a second, but let me just pause for a second and say one of the great resources, if, if you want to learn more about the attributes of God, the book Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer is the place to be. This, this book has rocked my world in so many different ways, and some of what you're going to hear the next few weeks that you're going to hear from Tozer. But Tozer said this, Nothing twists and deforms our souls more than a low or unworthy conception of God. So nothing, nothing twists or deforms our souls more than a low or unworthy conception of God. And what you see on the screen, we're going to get to in just a second. But the prayer is this, may God continually deliver us from small thoughts concerning Him. May God deliver us from false thoughts concerning Him. We need to constantly remind ourselves who God is and who we are. Let me give you a little assignment I want you to go home, I want you to turn your sinks on, I want you to place your hand under the sink, and I want you to think about how much water um, you can fit in the palm of your hand before it begins to overflow, and then how much water you can keep there. So I want you to do this assignment, this is your homework assignment, go home and do that, and then I want you to think about this, we serve a God who can hold all of the liquid in the universe in the palm of his hand and not spill one drop. That's the God that we serve. And yet sometimes we think um, that God, that God who can do it all somehow needs us who can't even keep water in the palm of our hands. And sometimes we have this false conception of who he is. Again, the words of Tozer, what is God like? If by that question we mean what is God like in himself, there's no answer. If we mean what has God disclosed about himself, um, that the reverent reason can comprehend, there is, I believe, an answer both full and satisfying. For while the name of God is secret and his essential nature incomprehensible, he is, or he in condescending love, has by revelation declared certain things to be true of himself. These we call attributes. So God has declared certain things to be true of himself and those things we call attributes. And let me repeat what I said from the beginning. The knowledge of God is, is a gift, it's not a given. So the knowledge of God is a gift, it's not a given. And what I mean by that is this, sometimes we presume that what we know about God, we know because of ourselves, because we're smart, because we did this or did that or did something else. And here's what we fail to realize. We must never treat the knowledge of God as a given. The knowledge of God is a gift. Meaning, hey, write this, if you take a note, write this down. It takes God to know God. It takes God to know God. The only way you and I know God is because God has revealed himself to us. It's not that we have gathered together, that we have somehow broken the code um, that the Bible has, and we say, we've broken the code, therefore we know God. No, God is up in heaven through his word, revealing himself to us. He's wanting us to know him, but we must start with him. And here's the beauty, the beautiful thing. We cannot make God any greater than he already is. Right? We can't make him any greater than he already is. But the sad reality is there are so many people, not just within the world, but so many people even in the church that don't, that don't ascribe to God the glory that's due his name. They don't see God the way they should see God. So what we want to do is we want to continually point people, point not just the unsaved, we want to continually point the saved to who God is, who he declares himself to be. We want to dig into God's revelation of himself. And today we start with the glory of God. Just a very small subject, I can assure you, which is way bigger than we can wrap our heads around. We, we can say from the word of God, God is glorious. 
But here's what I know. We, we can't fully wrap our heads around what that word means. Glory. What God's glory actually means. The only workable path that we have to know God's glory is to open the Bibles. Open, our, our, open God's word. Open this word before us. And here's the beauty. In this word, God hasn't necessarily defined glory for us. But yet, glory, God's glory is so grand that it splashes across every page that we open. And every page we see God's glory on display. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to jump into the word of God and to see uh, and behold the glory of God that is completely, totally on display for us. And may we respond rightly to it today. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read Isaiah 48, beginning at verses 9 through 12. When you get there, let me hear you say. So it says this, beginning in verse 9. Just, this is God speaking. Think about this. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now. And Lord, we want to respond rightly to who you are. And Lord, your word tells us that you are glorious. That you are a God of glory. In our time together, Lord, as we're trying to put which is incomprehensible in human words, but yet we really can't completely wrap our heads around, God, we pray that you would minister supernaturally to our natural minds, allowing us to know and glimpse, Lord, you and your supernatural glory. And to respond rightly to it. Speak to us through your word. Speak to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. So when the Bible speaks of God's glory, what is the Bible talking about? And here's what we have to understand. The doctrine of God's glory encompasses God's greatness, his beauty, um, his perfections, all that he is. One of my greatest uh, favorite definitions of the glory of God is from Pastor Sam Storms. I've used it before, but I can't find a better one yet. And he says this, glory is the beauty of God unveiled. Glory is all of God that makes God God and shows him to be worthy of our praise, our boasting, our trust, our hope, our confidence, and our joy. Glory is the external elegance of the internal excellencies of God. Or glory is what you see experience and feel when God goes public with his beauty. So when God reveals himself, glory is what we see, what we experience, and what we feel. In everything that he is and in everything that God does, God is greater than we can even describe him to be. So just, just think about that. There is none like him. He has no rivals. He has no equals. None can compare to him. And that being said, there are places in Scripture that define, in a sense, God's greatness or God's glory, but it uses the smallness of human language. Therefore, we can't truly grasp just how glorious and how great he is. But thankfully, God continue, continues to reveal himself 
to us. So we're going to take what God has revealed uh, and try to wrap our minds the best that we can around um, this incomprehensible God, around the glory of God. And we're going to do so by unpacking three truths today concerning the glory of God. The first is going to sound very simple and very simplistic, and um, it, it sounds that way, but it goes a whole lot further than that. So the first truth is this. God is altogether glorious. When we're talking about a glorious God, God is altogether glorious. Now here's what we know. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and in the, in the Hebrew, um, the Hebrew uses the word kavod um, to express the idea of glory. The word kavod actually means heaviness or weightiness. Thus, to experience the glory of God is to experience God's heaviness upon you. I want you to think about, think with me how many times, if ever, you've been sitting in church and um, God has been being declared, an attribute of God or God's word being spoken, and you feel the heaviness of God upon you. It's not a light thing. It's a heavy thing. I mean, it feels heavy. And it's something that maybe you don't even know what to do in that moment, and yet it is there. To know God's glory is to feel his heaviness upon us. Yet, tragically, in the church today, we often lack a weightiness concerning God. We don't often dive into who he is. Years ago, a pastor named Donald Barnhouse, he was a pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, delivered a message on the radio um, in which he speculated about what would be the most diabolical strategy that Satan could employ against the church in the years to come. To the astonishment of his listeners, Barnhouse imagined a world or, or city in which all the bars in Philadelphia would be closed, prostitutes would no longer walk the streets, pornography would no longer be available, the streets would be clean, all the city neighborhoods would be filled with law-abiding citizens, all swearing and cursing would be gone, children would respectfully say yes sir and no ma'am, and to top it all off, every church in town would be packed to overflowing. So what could be wrong with this picture? Barnhouse then delivered the knockout punch and he said this the deadliest most diabolical danger would be that each of these filled to capacity sanctuaries or in each of these filled to capacity sanctuaries Jesus Christ would never be preached and the glory of God would never be exalted and just think about this think about if we could have everything that we want all of our emotional needs met every week when we come together yet Christ not preached and his glory not exalted. And here's the problem. That's happening all across this nation in pulpits all across the world where Christ is not being preached. God's glory is not being exalted. But guess what we're realizing? We're realizing that we're not making things better in our world because we're lacking this. It's actually making things worse. And this is the picture that we are seeing. Let me just say this. If we're truly going to preach this word, then we must exalt the glory of God. We must exalt his glory. And in exalting his glory, what we're doing is we're exalting his name, his majesty, his power, his works, what he's done, his holiness. I mean, just think about this. In the word, God's glory is def God's glory are, are just, or his glory and his attributes are defined as being great, eternal, rich, um, highly exalted. God's glory, when, when we think about this, we just try to define it, but the best definition of God's glory is God. 
So the best definition we could give to God's glory is God himself. It's the very essence of his being. He is his own glory. God is glorified in himself. God is glorified through his name. God is glorified in all that he is by the way that he is. Look at, look at Psalm 29, verses 3 and 4. It says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. And then verse 9, it says, In his temple all cry glory. If God is in his temple and we have a glimpse of his temple, all we're able to say is glory. Why? Because God is altogether glorious. We get to Acts 7 and Stephen steps up and begins to proclaim a message and he begins his message this way. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. God is a God of glory. It is who he is. God's glory is intrinsic to who he is. Meaning, as we said a few weeks ago, we don't give God his glory. It is his. It's his already. Think about it like this. If man were never created to praise God, and angels were never created to serve God, would God still be a God of glory? And the answer is yes. And how do we know that or why do we know that? We know that because this, God's glory doesn't come from us. His glory comes because he is a God of glory. He is a glorious God. He is a God that we must exalt, that we must humble ourselves before. We don't give him his glory. Um, it's already his by nature of who he is. Our God is altogether glorious. Which leads us to the second truth. And this one might hit you a little, little weird, but just, just hang on with me. The second truth is this. God exists for the glory of God. So the second truth is not only is God altogether glorious, God exists for the glory of God. So God exists, or another way to put it is this, our God is a God-centered God. God is, our God is a God-centered God. And if that sounds strange to you, good. I want it to for just a second, because here's what I, wanna, I want you to understand. All that God does for us, in us, through us, and ultimately with us, God does for his glory. Look back at Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11, and listen to how many times God says, I'm doing this for me. He's not saying, I'm doing it for you, I'm doing it for me. Verse 9, for my name's sake, that's one, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, that's two, I restrain it for you. Look at verse 11, for my own sake, three, for my own sake, four, I do it. Then he says, my glory I will not give to another. God is not sharing his glory with any others, which begs the question of us, is God really at the center of our worship? Scripture demands that he must be. Let me say it again, everything that God has done from the beginning and will do and will be done all the way to the end is being done to display the glory of God and to cause God's people to glorify him. When we come together like we're doing right now, so we come together like we're doing right now, we are here not to exalt ourselves. We are not here to make ourselves feel better, although when we come together and exalt God, that's what happens. Our souls are lifted up. Our souls are, are, are lifting up within us as we exalt God. But our ultimate aim is we want him to be exalted. We want him to be lifted up. God is a God-centered God. If that strikes you as kind of weird, let me just ask, or let me say this and let me um, kind of give an example. If that strikes you as self-centered, that God is a God-centered God, the first question is this, who would you have God to exalt? Should God exalt you? Should God exalt me? God forbid, oh, I, this world will be a mess if God exalted Micah Strickland. Thank you. I was waiting on at least one. 
I was surprised it wasn't misty. But this world would be a mess in that way. But the picture is God lives to exalt himself. Think about it like this. It's a good thing for us that the sun and not the earth is the center of our solar system. Because the sun is 30,000 times uh, bigger than the earth. If the earth was at the center of the solar system, the earth would not have the gravitational ability because of its size to hold the rest of the solar system in orbit, and therefore we'd all die. So think about it like this. If the sun were a person, the most loving thing the sun could do would be to say, I must be the center. That would be the most loving thing the sun can do is say, please keep me at the center, for if I'm not at the center, you all die. And the most gracious, glorious, loving thing that God can say to us is keep me at the center. And if I'm at the center, your life will be held together. But the problem is if we try to replace God with anything else, everything falls apart. And some of us, are we, we have that testimony in our lives, or maybe we're walking through it right now. We're trying to hold our lives together ourselves and everything is falling apart because God is not the center. In the words of John Piper, he says, God would be unrighteous if he valued anything more than what was supremely valuable, which is himself. Thankfully, God is not unrighteous. But just think through the word with me. I wish I had time to go through every single scripture. I'm going to give you the scriptures and tell you what it says about a God-centered God. Think about Psalm 19. God made the heavens and the earth, and what are they doing? They're declaring the glory of God. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, God created us for his glory. Jeremiah 13, 11, God called Israel for his glory. Psalm 106, 7 and 8, God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. Romans 9, 17, God raised Pharaoh up to glorify God's name. Exodus 14, 4 and 18, God defeated Pharaoh at the Red Sea to show his glory. Ezekiel 24, God spared Israel in the wilderness for the glory of his name. 2 Samuel 7, 23, God gave Israel victory in Canaan for the glory of his name. John, excuse me, moving to the I'm all confused right now. 2 Kings 19.34, lost my place. God saved Jerusalem from attack for the glory of his name. Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23, God restored Israel from exile for the glory of his name. Moving to the New Testament, John 7, Jesus sought the glory of his father in all that he did. John 12 and John 17, Jesus endured his final hours of suffering for the glory of God. John 16, 14, the Holy Spirit would come to glorify the Son of God. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, Jesus is coming again for the glory of God. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we are called to do everything we do for what? For the glory of God. We worship a weighty God who does all things for the glory of His name. And this is a good time for us to pause and ask ourselves, is our worship of this God, is it light or is it weighty? Is our worship of this God, is it light or is it weighty? We must consider that. Does our worship reflect the full significance of who God is? Or do we just see God as just a little bit higher than us? So therefore, every, so often we need his help. No, to glorify God is to give him the honor that is due him. And we never offer anything less to him. And when all is said and done, let me just say this. If we truly believe 
the God of this word. So if we, if you and I, if you truly believe the God of this word, why would we not want to put him at the center of our lives? If we truly believe this word and God is who he says he is, why would we not want him to put in the center of our lives and the center of our gatherings? And let me say something I've said, and I say this over and over again, and I will continue to say this. At this church, First Baptist Ocean Way, by God's grace, we are not going to minimize God in order to attract people. And what I mean by that is this. We're not going to say, well, that, the wrath of God, we're not talking about that. The sin of man, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about this. We're leaving Romans 1 off the table. We're, doing all, we're not going to do that because that might make people feel bad about themselves. And God forbid we do that. We're not doing that. We're not minimizing God in order to, to draw people in so they'll fall in love with a God who is less than the God of this word. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to magnify God. We're going to exalt him for who he is. And we believe that as we do that, as God is lifted up, he will draw people to himself. And that is our goal. That is our desire. Let me keep this going for a second. I think it's here that we see people aren't starving for um, music they like. People aren't starving for more entertaining messages. People aren't starving to be entertained from the pulpit. People are starving for the glory of God, whether they know it or not. And let me just say this. If they're not getting it in the church, then where would they get it? Just think about this. They're starving for the glory of God. If they don't get it here and through our lives, where will they see it? Brothers and sisters, this shows us we must commit ourselves to be as God. We must be God-centered. We must be God-centered in all that we do, believing that if God, if we make much of him, if we make much of him, he will make much of himself. And something will happen here that can only be explained by him, and that is what we want. Right? We, we don't want something that we can explain on our own. Too many churches, guess what? Too many churches, if the Holy Spirit stopped showing up, nothing would change. They would still keep going as if nothing ever happened. Because nothing is dependent upon the Holy Spirit. It's dependent upon themselves. We don't want that. We want everything we do to be dependent upon him so that he might blow our minds with his goodness, his power, his faithfulness, all for his glory. God exists for the glory of God. And then lastly, lastly, we are saved for the glory of God. We are saved for the glory of God. The reason you and I are saved is for God's glory. Real quick, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, I want you to see something. In Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 3 through 14. If any of you are bad at the English language, let me just tell you this. Verses 3 through 14 um, in the Greek is one um, run-on sentence. So if you've ever written a whole paragraph and never put a period um, and have 300 words and it's one sentence, um, there you go. Paul's right along with you. So you can feel a little bit better about that. But in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, Paul addresses the reality of every member of the Trinity working together on behalf of our salvation. Meaning, our salvation, your salvation and my salvation, didn't happen accidentally. It happened eternally. Some people call this the covenant of redemption. Meaning, from the beginning of time, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit covenanted together that they would do whatever was necessary to save us from our sin. And in Ephesians 1, we have this pictured perfectly and beautifully. In fact, I'm going to show you three things concerning God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We're going to read those verses when we get to it and just show you this picture and then show you how we are saved for the glory of God. So the first is this. We have, we have God the Father who has planned our salvation. So God the Father planned our salvation. Look at verse 3. 
through verse 6. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I don't know how to explain that, but here's what I do know. God has taken the initiative to save you and to save me. That God the Father has taken us who were at one time his enemies and simply because of his grace has made us objects of his affections. And what that means is this. Before the sun and the moon were created, before any mountain um, appeared, before one drop of water was put in the ocean, before anything in all of creation existed, God in heaven looked upon us who he would create and he set his love upon us. He set his love upon us. Therefore, think about it this way. Forgiveness was in the heart of God before sin was ever in the heart of man. Before man ever sinned against God, God um, purposed that he would forgive man of his sin. R.C. Sproul summed it up this way. Salvation is not an afterthought of God. Instead, from the very foundation of the world, God had a sovereign plan to save. And God moved heaven and earth to bring it to pass. God the Father planned our salvation. Secondly, God the Son accomplished or purchased our salvation. God the Son accomplished or purchased our salvation. Look at verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness or the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God the Son accomplished or purchased our salvation. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins or forgiveness of our trespasses. Jesus came to earth and he reconciled us to God by redeeming us. And the problem is most Christians just stop at saying, what does it mean that Christ died for us? And we say, well, that he forgave us. And we just stop there. And brothers and sisters, it goes way further than that. Not only did he forgive us, he redeemed us and he adopted, brought us into the family so that you and I who are in Christ are now not just forgiven by God, we are sons and daughters of God. That's what was accomplished in Christ giving himself for us. He paid the full price for us. A missionary in West Africa was trying to convey the word redeem to the, the people that he was sent to minister to. And so he asked um, the meaning of redeem in the Bambara language. And his African assistant expressed in the native tongue and said, we say that God took our heads out. That's what it means to redeem. And of course, the missionary said, what you talking about, Willis? 
If you were here last week, you get that. If you weren't, you're trying to figure out what's going on. But we'll move on. So to which the, the missionary looked perplexed. And so the assistant continued by saying that many years ago, some of his ancestors had been captured by slave traders. They were chained together and driven to the seacoast. Each of these prisoners had a, a heavy iron co collar placed around their neck. As the slaves passed through villages, a chief might notice a friend or a relative, and he would stop um, the, the procession as they went forward, and he would offer to pay the slave traders gold, ivory, silver in order to redeem his family or his friend. The prisoner then would be redeemed by payment, and their head would be literally taken out of the iron collar. Brothers and sisters, because of our sin, we are born enslaved to sin. We are born sentenced to death, and we have an iron collar around our neck. It's a heaviness in a completely different way that we are bearing the weight of our own sin. Yet in eternity past, God the Son stepped forward and said, I will die for and I will redeem them from their sin." If we can't rejoice in that or get excited about that, something is wrong with us in the essence of our salvation. If we can't get excited about the fact that Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves, then I don't know what will excite us. I'm afraid that what excites us are things that can't save us. And what doesn't excite us is what does save us. Brothers and sisters, may we repent of, of giving our all in our devotion and our passion to things that can't save us. That's something God convicted me of. On Saturdays, I get really excited when Georgia comes on. In fact, Misty will tell you, I say, um, hey, we got to be back by 3.30, Georgia plays. It's time for kickoff. Let's do it. And, and there will be times where I see Misty and the girls, they'll be videoing me as I um, am sitting on the couch biting my fingernails, and I jump up and get my hand caught in a ceiling fan and do all these, these things as I'm watching the game. And every so often I jump up and get a cramp, and I'll fall down, and you know, all these things um, happen in our house. But God began to convict me that, there was a time where I would do that and then I would come in here to this place of worship and in the midst of all that was going on, in the midst of all the things, I'd be like this. Hmm. And let me ask you a question. If somebody from the outside were to look at me, who would they think I was worshiping? They would think the Georgia Bulldogs got way more of my worship than the God of the universe. And the problem is, Jordan, I don't just... Uh, I mean, you can't trust and can't depend on humans for anything. And yet we can depend on God for everything and to save us and keep us forever and ever and ever. And sometimes we hear that and guess what we say? We say nothing. We say nothing. We act like, it. we act like it's a given. We act like we were born and God couldn't help himself, so he saved us because why wouldn't he? And the problem is, no, we were born in sin, and the only way we can ever be saved is by what God has done for us and our response to him. And if we've never responded to him, then we will never respond by hearing how good he's been to us. Whew, okay, let me, whew. So God the Son has accomplished our salvation. He's done everything possible to save us. And then third, God the Spirit has sealed us in our salvation. Look at verses 13 and 14 quickly. It says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised 
Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So the Holy Spirit seals a believer and serves as the absolute assurance that God's saving work will be completed, that God saves us and He will keep us. In the days of Paul, the seal was a sign of security, of authenticity, of a completed transaction. It was a sign of authority. In fact, think with me about two things. In Daniel 6, praying to God was forbidden, but Daniel kept praying. Daniel was caught and he was thrown into a lion's den. In Daniel 6, 17, we read, And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. So the point is, anyone who saw the king's seal knew that they dare not open the den because the highest authority in all the land had sealed it. When Christ was buried in the tomb, the Roman guard rolled a stone across the opening and sealed it with the seal of Rome. We read that in Matthew 27, 66. That meant that no one was to open the seal unless it was a power greater than Rome. Some of you know where I'm going with this. Thankfully, a power greater than Rome broke that seal. The power of God. And when you and I become Christians, brothers and sisters, Christ puts his spirit in us, declaring that we are secure in him, meaning nothing can ever touch you. If, if, the, if you've been sealed with the spirit of God, nothing can touch you unless it is a power that's greater than the power of God. And thankfully, no power like that exists. No power like that exists. When all is said and done, these truths show us that God is more committed to our salvation than even we are. And you might be thinking right now, well, Micah, that's a lot of good information, but what does that have to do, or how does that show us that we are saved for the glory of God? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because here's, let this sink in. Why did God plan our salvation? Why did God the Son purchase our salvation? Why did God the Holy Spirit seal us in our salvation? And here's the beautiful thing. Each time in this section that a member of the Trinity is mentioned, it tells us why. So think about this. Why does God the Father, why did God the Father plan our salvation? Look at verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace. Why did God the Son purchase our salvation? Look at verse 12, the very end, to the praise of His glory. Why does God the Holy Spirit seal us in our salvation? Look at verse 14, to the praise of His glory. So why does God save us? Brothers and sisters, first of all, so God might be glorified in us and through us. That is why we are saved, for the glory of God. Therefore, what must our response be to the glory of God? I'm going to show you one more quote. It's from Richard Baxter, and he says this. As the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we understand that God is our glory. God only is the real glory of every person and everything and every word and every action of our lives. God is our glory. And if God is not your glory, then you are trusting in something that cannot save you, that cannot keep you, that cannot help you. Oh, may God be the center of your life. May you live for his glory. May you live to exalt him. May you realize that he is a God-centered God and it's good for you because, because he's the center of your life. He's holding everything together. 
And today, if you recognize that you have placed yourself at the center of your life, may you repent of that. May you step off the throne. May you put him on the throne of your heart and life. And may you let him do what only he can do in you and through you. Only he can hold your life together. You cannot do it on your own. May we give God what is rightfully his glory. May we give him praise. May we understand that it is his. We can't add anything to it, but we can make sure that with our lives, we're going to live them. Um, we're going to do it for his glory in our lives. And through this, his church, we're going to live our lives so that God might receive the glory. For let me say it one more time. If the lost world won't see it in us, where will they see it? Where will they see it? I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to enter into a time of invitation and consecration where we say whatever God is saying to us, may we be obedient and respond to that. So let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, we believe by the power of your spirit, by the power of your word, that you are speaking, God, to your people. Not because of my eloquence by any means, God, but because of your word and your spirit. God, we're just presenting your word and believing that you, were, you will do the work. You're working now because your word has been declared. And your spirit's at work in the hearts of your people and even in the hearts of some that might be in this room that don't know you. And your spirit is drawing them to yourself. Even now they feel a heaviness. And that's your spirit of conviction drawing them to you. Oh God, I pray in this moment that they would not cling to themselves and cling to death, but they would let go for the sake of life. They would turn from trusting themselves, turn from their sin, and turn to Jesus Christ and trust Him as their Savior and Lord. Father, I pray for other believers in this room today that have, for some reason, taking you out of the center and put themselves or someone else in the center and their lives are falling apart. May this be a wake-up call. May they kick off the throne anything and everything that is not you so that you may take your rightful place in their lives. And we pray the same, Father, in this your church. Finish this time. In Jesus' name, amen.